Welcome to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and today we are going to talk to Keegan Swenson about the things he did right and wrong at Unbound. Last time we asked him about Lifetime Grand Prix, like things that went wrong, he kind of said, I don't know. So we're going to, I think he said, I didn't win everything. So um, anyways, hopefully we're going to get some more insight this time. I have more probing questions. Uh, we're also going to talk about altitude training and an athlete has submitted basically more or less like their training and asked us why they're not getting faster or kind of asked us to do that, that audit. So you speak Ivy should be a good time. eh? So yeah. How, how to not get faster. <laughs> yes. We also oh, have a lot of athletes. Spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> <laughs> we also had a lot of, uh, and that's Ventum bikes, Ivy, Adrian, of course, and trainer roads, of course. Um, but a lot of people submit submissions about Unbound. Tons, by the way. I hand-selected a few. Um, we can't read them all. It would be a really long podcast, and a lot of you would just be like, I'm not getting faster. I don't want to hear this. So I'm just going to share a few where they share some like actionable things, and we'll listen to that really quick. Ian says, my Unbound 200, the biggest drag on time was the first eight kilometers of hike of hike a bike. That sounds common for everybody. Uh, Keegan, we're going to get to that later for you um, in terms of how you manage that. Ian says, I immediately abandoned any specific time goal and reverted to maintaining some respectable average speed. That seems interesting to me. I wouldn't like focus on my average speed considering you just went through unless you hit the lap button and you were looking at everything after that, because that would ruin your average speed. You know, it's kind of the same thing as looking at like a time, like at that point, um, I would either just like focus on power after that or just reset and hit the lap and then go for it thereafter. Anyways, uh, Ian said, the other unknown was climbing almost 3,000 meters spread over rollers the whole way. Even with coasting down the roller, I didn't want to risk burning up on the climb, so I kept my power modest and set an alarm on my Garmin to chirp above 278 watts. Smart move, Ian. Like, for somebody like Keegan that's racing at the front and trying to win, that's not a smart move. Like, you want to be able to go with moves, but for somebody that's just trying to finish the day, it's probably a really smart way to govern yourself to make sure you don't, you know, completely blow yourself up. Smart thinking. Ian then says, a couple times I could feel a little pre-bonk and I would feel right away. I had one and a half liters of Martin in my Camelback gels and syrup. I think I was pretty well placed in having something every 15 to 20 minutes or so. I hope you, I assume you drank a whole lot more than 1.5 liters over the course of, you know, 12 hours. Uh, That's probably, it sounds like just to get to aid one. I would hope, right? Yeah. Completely Um, unrelated. Identifying pre-bonk is most undervalued skill in cycling. (laughs) Yeah, I can't do it. I don't know about you guys. I, 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 I just need to feel like, because if I start to notice like, Ooh, I'm feeling bonky, then I'm, I'm already way too far down the road. Yeah. Same for you, Keegan. Yeah. Just stay on top of it in the beginning. Otherwise you can, you know, I I do, I kind of know what he's talking about though. Like Mm -hmm. you can kind of feel it coming. You're actually going to smash some gels and get back on it. Otherwise (laughs) we're going to go down. (laughs) Yeah. When I feel right, I never feel that, right? Like I never have those moments where it's coming along. It's just even keeled the whole day in terms of energy. doesn't mean that I feel like super fast and I can attack and ride as hard as I can, but I don't have those ups and downs. Every time I feel that way, it's because I'm force feeding myself and like 30 minutes goes by and I'm like, unbelievable. I have to eat again. Like you gotta be kidding me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's just nonstop. Like if you change it from like, uh, the perspective of, I think a lot of athletes are like, Oh, I should eat. But instead, if it's like, as you're pedaling, you're eating and that's just like your mindset and you're constantly doing it, mm-hmm. it really makes it easier to not get behind for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Ian says, keep- 
Oh, no worries. It's good, Ivy. Good interjection. I like it. Something's <laughs> along. So uh, Ian says, I think I was pretty well placed in having something every 15 to 20 minutes or so. And every nutrition suggestion, including rice and eggs, three hours pre-race came from the podcast. Nice. Way to go. Yeah. You're with uh, some of the best in the world, Ian, with eating rice and eggs before a race. That's like such a common thing that you'll see. The aid stations are actually very well run. Uh, if you were in the first half of the arrivals, they had lots of options, Coke and Doritos, a kid would run up, would run up to you, grab your bottles to fill them. Another would grab your bike to clean it. And then you would hunt a guy down and who poured half a bottle of chain loop on my drivetrain. Before that intervention, I was hearing some sounds I had never heard before coming from the chain and sprockets. I was just lucky not to be one of the lucky ones to dis- or unlucky ones to discover the joys of single speed from a damaged derailleur. Lots of those. Um, he then talks about strategy. He says, I didn't volunteer a lot of polls, but would sometimes discover a bunch of people on my wheel. No hero polls. I learned that from the podcast. I worked with people here and there, found a group of Quebecois, which worked for me, and we stuck together to the first aid station for a bit, but two of the guys in the group ultimately had no clue uh, what they were doing when they were polling, so I dropped them and joined a more aggressive group, and we stayed together for about 80K or so. My mental spirit lagged, and I had to stop to recompose my thoughts. Uh, played a mix I had for that situation from my phone and my camelback on the shoulder strap pocket. And it totally gave me the energy I needed to get back into things and through the rain and lightning uh, podcast. This came from podcast discussions of music and RPE. This is awesome. Ian's like taking notes and just like executing. So good on you. Uh, Ian that says started training with trainer road in December and was pretty compliant until I had a decent race at the end of April. Weather got better and I wanted to ride outside more, which made plan adherence harder. I run, I work at a law practice with two small kids Trainer Road really got me to where I needed, though. I feel that I had that had I adhered more to my training plan during the build phase, I might have covered more ground quickly. But I used so much from Trainer Road from the podcast and from Trainer Road. I even tapered or taped to my bar, face, shoulders, hips, ankles, smile to remind myself to relax on the bike. Uh, finished in 16 hours, 59 minutes, and 21 seconds. Given my obstacles during training, I'm happy with this result. Thanks for all you do at Trainer Road, and thanks for the podcast. It's impressive. 16 hour day. That's probably scary to you, Keegan, right? Thinking of being out there for that long, like, you know, yeah, especially in those conditions, that rain that came in the afternoon was pretty gnarly. Yeah. You've finished was, before uh, that rain, right? Yeah. We got a little bit the last like five miles or so. Um, mm-hmm. but then I, uh, we can kind of see it coming. I think it was part of the motivation. We had to kind of stay on the gas the last 20 miles instead of attacking each other. We're like, well, if we keep rolling here, we're going to miss this rain. If we start playing games, we might get really wet. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, worked out, you know, <laughs> yeah, no one likes Smart. to be cold and wet. No, no <laughs> one does. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm going to read through Preston's really quick. I did unbound. Uh, I raced 200 or I raced the 200 single speed. You're savage Preston. Um, wow. I tried to get into the XL, but didn't get the lottery. Then I got into the 200. I've done three 24 hour mountain bike races in the past couple of years, always single speed. And I was really excited about a different challenge. Five weeks, five weeks out, I crashed in the trails, tore some muscles in my forearm and bicep. And I did only train and road workouts leading up to the race. I only got outside a couple times a week before the race. I think my nutrition plan was very solid, but I made two costly mistakes. We spent all day Thursday and Friday in the sun and I didn't drink nearly enough water. I've done Ironman, ran ultras, big bike races. I'm a little disappointed in myself for getting dehydrated before the race even is even started. I also took two a leave in the morning for my arm and I wish I wouldn't have a lesson learned. Keegan, uh, the whole pre-race thing, how do you balance that? Because now like there's like press conferences and I don't know if they did any pre-race press conferences or anything else like that or sponsor obligations. How'd you balance yeah, I mean, that? We just that's, had... that's just such a bad idea. Like, the day or two days before the race, like you want to be as lazy as possible, right? Yeah. You want to keep it pretty minimal. 
Um, yeah, we hit like a we did a Garmin autograph signing Friday morning. Um, but it was pretty short, like 30, 30 40 minutes. Um, and, you know, just try and stay hydrated before and during and, you know, try and stay in the shade and off the feet a bit. But, uh, I mean, a certain amount of it's inevitable. You're bound to be outside doing whether you're picking up registration or whatever else. But I think if you are out there, you just need to, you know, be conscientious to make sure you're like getting enough water and, you know, other hydration. And, um, also just try not to be just standing and pounding in the sun too long because it does add up, you know, especially if you're doing it Thursday and Friday. If just one of the days, it's a little better, but, uh, both those days wandering around the, the expo can add up. So it's hard for some people because they're like hyper social. Right. And they like really love yeah. to like interact with people and that helps them probably relax too. Ivy, uh, are you that? No, you're not that type, right? Or you are for races. Um, for races. I mean, it's hard because you want to like, you want to meet your sponsor obligations and connect with people and say hi. But, um, if you're doing it at the cost of your performance for the, for the race, like maybe not the best idea. So it's, it's tricky to balance. I definitely don't like, hermit myself uh in preparation for the race but i definitely try not to blow it by expending all my energy the days before the race you know yeah i hermit myself zero i'm not gonna <laughs> like act like i don't like and and the thing is like i usually when we're at races there's a lot of people that that like we can talk to and a lot of trainer road athletes and everything else that we see and it's really easy for it to get out of hand so like i try to pick up my registration early. Sorry, everybody, but I try to dodge people like in general. And I just try to get away from it because otherwise I could spend all day on my feet. And I know that I don't have sponsor obligations and not paid for my results, but I also know that it's a really good way to sabotage my result in like a seemingly benign way is just to like show up and spend all day on my feet beforehand. So good takeaway. I'm glad you recognize that in this case. Uh, okay. I was in good position for a podium when I started battling cramps around mile 55. Cramps were a constant issue around until around mile 120. I got passed by so many single speeds during this time. The last 85 mile, miles, though, I felt unstoppable. I passed so many other people, uh, but not enough single speed riders and I ended up getting eighth. That's really strong. Way to go. When I finished, I was wishing that I had another 100 miles that I could keep hunting. Probably you and you alone, Preston, uh, wishing that you could have another 100 miles in unbounds at the end. <laughs> Super impressive. Uh, really proud of my perseverance and effort. I also appreciated the learned lessons. Gravel Worlds 300 is next for me. My goodness gracious. Um, good job, Preston. So don't stay on your feet. Also, kind of the funny thing on the cramping part, when cramps happen, you kind of start to think like forever you'll deal with cramps for the end of the race or for the rest of the race. Have you ever found this, Keegan, where you cramp and then they just go away and you don't have them anymore? Or do they typically stay? Yeah, sometimes they just seem to kind of vanish. Uh for me, it seems like it helps to just, I mean, if you get off your bike, I feel like it makes it worse. You just kind of have to push through them and, um, find like a different pedaling style that might work. Sometimes that's a slower cadence, like standing up. And sometimes it's a lighter cadence, like with less pressure on the pedals. I feel like I just tried both strategies until one works or neither works. And you just have to keep, keep pushing through them and ripping your muscle fibers apart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then eventually they seem like sometimes I just go away. Um, but yeah, I think I mean to avoid to begin with, I mean, just staying on top of hydration is big, making sure you're getting enough sodium and and just fueling in general, you know, glycogen and um whatever else. But at a certain point, I feel like everyone cramps at some point in a race this long, you're bound to have some issue here and there. Yeah. Did you cramp at unbound? Uh actually I didn't this year. I just had like a couple little like twitches of cramps. Um but I never like actually had a 
like proper lockup anywhere, which was good. Because last year I cramped at Judge Hill, which was mm-hmm. between it's like just before aid two. Um, and then I kind of got my control and I went away. That was good the rest of the race. But um, this year, I think, I don't know if it was like it's just a different kind of pace or if I fueled a bit better, uh, maybe a bit of both. But yeah, no cramps this year, which was nice. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I, this is not scientific at all. Keegan and I have talked about this before, but muscle fibers that are torn can't cramp. So <laughs> he pushed through Science. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He pushed through it. They snap like twigs and maybe that's why you don't cramp anymore. So maybe that happened. I have no clue. Um, cramping is still a kind of a mystery, um, in terms of what exactly causes them, but I think it's really just many things cause them. So, okay. Last yeah. one from Andrew. Uh, says, I just want to say thank you. Three months ago, I'd never trained for cycling before. I've been riding all my life, but mostly for fun and mostly for gravel and mountain biking. Since COVID, I've spent a lot of time uh, on other platforms and then always racing. Then I was accepted to the Unbound 200 lat- Wait, Lottery. Wait, yeah, Three sorry, months ahead. ago, they had never trained <laughs> Three months. for it? Oh my God. Wild. And they get into Unbound. <laughs> My job is more than full-time. My son is just over one, so he is also full-time. So the best I could muster was a low-volume plan of four to five hours per week. I did my best to complete the most of the training with a few work travel outages. I successfully finished Unbound on Saturday, and I couldn't have done it without you. I wrote a small race report here and on his Strava, and I think I'll even share Andrew's like Strava link down here in the links, or sorry, in the description so you can see it. I also got, um, so anyways, goes through there and says, if anyone doubts the power of a low volume plan, feel free to cite my results. Um, and then here's a question with more or with a year more of low volume training ahead. Could I finish the unbound 350 in 2024? I'd say, yeah, right. Ivy, if they did three months and then they can do the 200, why not? Savage. <laughs> I wish I could be Andrew. I wish I could just be like, I'll do the hardest gravel race in North America today. I think I'll be a bike racer today. Like what yeah. the heck? It's awesome. Pretty amazing. Way to yeah. go, Andrew. Uh, all right, Keegan, questions. We're going to run through some Unbound yeah. questions. If you have questions for Keegan and you're watching this on YouTube, you can put them down in the comments and we'll try to get the answers to you as, as we can. Can you talk about your new bike? That's the first question I want to ask because you were on a new bike. It wasn't the same stigmata you've been on, but I don't know if you can talk about it yet. Yeah, can't talk about the new bike. Cool. So Sounds just, good. You can, you can look at it and make your own assumptions. <laughs> it was rusty brown red. That much I got from it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it looked like it had a big, and Keegan, this is where you don't talk. This is where I just share observations. Um, but it looked like it had a really big, like, or a sloping top tube and a really tall seat post, basically like a short seat tube equals a taller seat post because you have to, your leg length is your leg length, which means that it would be provide more flex through the seat post, which would make it more comfortable, which is interesting. It also looked kind of slack, but I could be wrong. That's always really hard to tell just from looking at a bike but it kind of looked slack or slacker than perhaps the old bike. I'm curious to see. Okay. Next one. What was your nutrition strategy? Like you use never second stuff. So what'd you take in? Yeah. What was your uh, grams per hour? So I went there with a plan of like, I don't know, roughly 100, 120 grams an hour. And that was mostly through pretty much all through gels and drink mix. And I had, I think I only had one bar out there. Then there's a new, the new never second bars are actually like, they're pretty sweet. They're very easy to eat, kind of date-based. Um, they pack smaller than a gel, and they have like 30 grams of carbs. So I packed one of those because I figured it'd be good to have a little bit of solid food in there at some point. Had that like halfway through. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I had eat alerts up on my Garmin. Like every 40 minutes, I'd put down a gel. And then I had, see what I have in my, in my bottles. I had about 
60 grams. And I can't remember exactly the ratios, but the bottles were a hair heavier than the pack in terms of like richness of mix. The pack's a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, just to kind of have to mix it up a little bit and not have the full, full strength all the time. Um, and, and I also knew that I'd be drinking a lot more fluid because I was planning on having about a liter an hour of Got it. hydration. So like drinking that much, you don't, you just can't have it mixed quite as heavy. Otherwise you're going to end up with a lot of stuff in your stomach. So I mix it a little bit leaner and just drank more, more volume. Um, so that was, uh, and then the only thing we changed was this is when I used the phone, big gravel beef phone, you know, I texted ahead. I was like, <laughs> texted Myra and I was like, Hey, I really don't want this pack in my back anymore. It's getting kind of hot. Um, and I also just decided I kind of wanted water and a monster for our aid too. So we ditched the pack strategy, Sam Myron spread out. I grabbed one bottle of monster that had a frozen gel attached to it. And then I grabbed another bottle of just straight ice water with a bit of salt in it from Myron, um, which was great. Nice to get rid of the pack. And I was going to grab the monster anyway. And I figured that just be, I didn't want that much weight. It's like, it's a little, not, it's not quite enough to get through this last bit, but it's like at the end of the race, you can kind of lean out a little bit and not carry as much. I knew it was going to be quite intense. So yeah. Yeah. That was where the, caffeine the phone came in handy. Uh, only, see, I had 180 milligrams just in the monster. Got so it. I drank that first. I grabbed that at 82, chugged that pretty quick within like probably 30, 40 minutes. I finished that. And then we just on to the plain water for the rest of the, that like, whatever that pushes from A to the finish. Got it. Uh, you mentioned a frozen gel. Uh, that's like yeah. a never second. That's not like you just froze your gel, right? Like No, <laughs> yeah. So like Never Second has uh new frozen gels and they I think they actually like they tested them last year with Yumbo in the tour. Um and now you y'all can buy them. They're pretty sweet. It's basically it's slightly bigger than a gel to allow just a bit more volume and they have I don't know what they changed in the like chemical makeup of the gel, but it doesn't freeze like fully solid. It kind of is like uh it's like slightly softer than like an otter pop or something. Um but basically you freeze them. And you can grab them and you let them sit out for like just a couple of minutes, especially when it's that hot. And then you have this nice, like kind of slushy frozen thing you can suck down real quick. And it's kind of logistically oh hard. You have to have a cooler and a freezer and whatever else, but it's pretty clutch to be able to cool yourself off in a race like this. So I'm uh, pretty excited about those. I tested it one day in Tucson. I was like, oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be a game changer. <laughs> so uh, I was excited to be able to use them goes online immediately i need those <laughs> i know it's like yeah. pudding pops it's like a flintstone push pops <laughs> I know. we had uh <laughs> the uh our my team manager sam who was helping hand those out he like take take them out too early and he's like oh no they're not here yet so we go put it back and grab a new one and then we still wouldn't be there and he was just stressing trying to always have a cold one so he ended up then he free, refreeze them he ended up eating a bunch of them throughout the day just whipping out all the spare <laughs> Sam was he's hyped. like they're really good <laughs> that's awesome so they're good enough just to eat you know? <laughs> that's awesome uh, uh again i i need to find the study on this but there was a study that looked at like various different cooling methods and drinking a frozen drink like that like a slushy sort of a drink was one of the most effective at cooling down core temp so yeah i think it is i think that this is going to sound like an ad for, uh, for never second here. Uh, they do not sponsor this podcast. I've never even used their stuff. I probably should at some point, but, um, I have, I stole one from Keegan and Sophia's house. There you go. Nice. (laughs) They had like a fruit basket with them all (laughs) arranged. And so I was like, "Mm, 
they won't notice if I try a couple. <laughs> dog feast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, um, dog sitter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they say uh, they say like science first, never second, and that's actually a good example of being science driven there because that's like uh, one of the things that cools down core temp, and that's so key. Uh, did you have uh, so when you pivoted or switched or anything else like that? Did you get an upset gut at any point in the race? Uh, not really. I mean, I guess the only time it really got upset is I had, you know, I had a hot shot when I started to feel it was a little bit of cramp twitches, yeah. um, and immediately started throwing up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, hot shots are gnarly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've never, never had a problem with it. Never had an issue. Uh, but my stomach was like definitely kind of on the edge. I think like it wasn't feeling bad, but you know, you throw anything in there, it doesn't like, and mm things go wrong. So I was like, well, I'm gonna have to throw up. And I just rolled to the back of the bunch and hope no one would see me. I was like, well, if I see me throwing up, I'm probably going to get attacked. So I think only Lachlan maybe saw me. Um, but so then, and then the pace continued, but at least I was able to, you know, puke <laughs> and rally as they say. <laughs> Are you serious? You threw up in the middle of unmount 200 and yeah, it was like later? I don't know, 20 miles, 20 miles to go. It most, you know, threw it up and I was like, oh, now I need to eat another gel. So I put down another gel and then we were off. So I just eaten the gel and immediately it came back up. So oh <laughs> savage. This Do you know what my mind. Are, yeah. This is no, what is that? It's not just... fireball. Yeah, it's not fire. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not much different. It's, uh, it's just spicy. Oh, it's <laughs> a good point. It's like, like fireball a very would work. Str- <laughs> yeah, it's a very strong tasting little shot where they it's kind of like an anti-cramp cocktail is how they're marketed, right? And it's like a tiny little thing and then you take it down. And there's the famous story here on the podcast of when we did Levi's Grand Fondo with Chad and he was going through a lot of cramping problems and he was cramping like crazy. And we got to like an aid station sponsored by Hot Shots and he took like five. Didn't he, he drop two? So oh yeah, no. And he was just like losing it for the rest. And it was hilarious because then, sorry, this sounds bad. And by the way, these are two anecdotal examples i'm sure there are there are in the minority and the majority of people don't throw up are they but, it sounds like if you drink <laughs> one you'll throw up. <laughs> no i don't think it is i don't want to like you know a lot of people <laughs> use them and it's like a legit part of their strategy <clears throat> but chad then when he was throwing up that was causing cramps which then would it was hilarious to watch for me like you know as a friend you know when you rib your friends and stuff it was kind of funny to watch um it was a good time so anyways uh Okay, what'd you carry for spares? So you carried extra nutrition, it sounds like, for the situation where, for example, you lost your gel, but in this case, you threw it up, right. and then you were able to take in more. But what'd you take for spares in general? Yeah, so I had, I put two extra gels um, on me. So I was like, I'm going to have, you know, always have two extra just in case I drop one or, you know, I decide I need more. Or if you're with someone in the bunch and they need another gel and they're a big part of the, the situation to make sure you stay away, you don't want to be losing people. You know, later yeah. on in the race, you'd be like, no, you no, you don't get this. But <laughs> early on, maybe you share. Uh, so anyway, yeah. two of those. Uh, I had three CO2s. I had three tubes. Three I had tubes? all the tire plugs. All? Uh, I had two on the bike, and then I had one in each pack. Wow. But they're the super three small, tubes. like the little tubes. So three of those. Are they the two had tubes? Uh, or similar, similar. Yeah. 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 Got it. For clarification, you of course started, like you were set up tubeless, right? Yeah. This is for emergency. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Like backup. Uh, so yeah, three of those. And then I had Stan's dart. I had a Dyna plug along with extra plugs for each of those. And I had a few pre-threaded 
uh, bacon strips, like style genuine plugs. And I had an extra CO2 head. I had a hand pump. I had a multi-tool, which had a chain tool and uh, whatever else, a couple tire levers. Um, Jeez. Some tire boots. Do- I think that's about it. Then the boots are like a, a heavy-duty sticker that you can put on the inside of your tire. These right? are actually custom-made by Myron. He cuts the uh, sidewall off old Aspens or mountain, mountain bike tires because the sidewall is bigger mm-hmm. and just rips the bead out. And then it's like a nice heavy-duty tire boot, and you can cut various sizes. Um, so you just use old tires, and that way you can – I just packed one with each tube, so I had a boot for each tube. So I figure if you're going to put a tube in, you probably sliced your tire like – properly so you're gonna need to put a boot in anyway and those work a lot better than a uh a gel wrapper yeah so i know um park tool makes these really heavy duty they're like dirt bike graphics basically they're like really heavy duty Mm -hmm. vinyl that you can use but the tricky part with that is especially if you use something like muck off sealant it's kind of like slimy and greasy yeah any sealant's not really gonna yeah yeah it doesn't make a sticker want to stick but then if you just have a thick patch of rubber pressing up against there, cut out from a tire. It's kind of smart. I mean, it is smart. So Myron knows what he's doing. That had Mm -hmm. to have been like 10 or 12 pounds of spares, man. That's a lot. No, wasn't that much. Maybe two pounds worth. I'd bet if even the tubes are tubes. Oh yeah, that's right. The tubes are really light. Tubes are like, you know, 40 grams a piece and the CO twos. I only had 20, I had a 25 gram in my pocket and then I had the 20 grams elsewhere. Um, okay. and, and yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. Light. Just like, okay. you know, one big, it was like one big saddlebag worth of stuff. So it's not like crazy, but I figure, I don't know, cause you can change a tube and, you know, I should be able to change a tube in under three minutes. So I figure you can still like pull a result if you have to put a tube in even twice. So I figure yep. it's better to be able to get to the feed zone and then get a new wheel rather than like riding it on a flat. Yeah. Did what tires did you use yeah. and did you use inserts? Yeah. So I ended up, I was going to race the refuse. Uh, uh-huh. and then like it started raining and I was going to Tobin and I were going back and forth as to what to use. And I remembered last year, like when it was like, it started raining, uh, like with like 25 miles to go and there was this mud section and then the slick got as assumed the slick got very slick. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I went for the safe option and ran the, the Rambler I ended up switching that morning. Um, I ran, so the four, I ran the 40 mil Rambler with, uh, the 60 TPI was silk shield. So it's still a pretty heavy duty tire. It's not quite as tough as the refuse, uh, but it's almost as tough. Um, so they were good hindsight. Refuse. I think the refuse would have been fine because it really was only muddy that first bit and the rest of the day it was dry, but I was just, I didn't trust the weather forecast and it still looked like there was a chance of rain. So I was just like, I'm just going to err on the safe side and run the knobs. So, and then I had, nice I had Tannis, are... Tannis inserts in there. So, okay. Oh, nice. For those that are like in their car or on the bike listening to the podcast right now, the refuse are like totally slick, but like much tougher. And the Rambler is like a low profile knob, would you say? Low to medium? Yeah, it's a pretty fast rolling, like small knob. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yes. They're both fast tires. The Rambler is not like an aggressive tire by any means. So it's still pretty quick. Yep. They aren't the fastest rolling tires, either of them with the 60 TPI option and everything else no. like that. But durability matters more. Um if you were to figure out oh, yeah. what the time difference is, you know, a 10 minute catastrophic flat change is going to be slower than running something else. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, next question. What did you listen to music? Cause there was a rule change at unbound that you could use headphones this year and music does help. And 
you and Finsty have also used like JBL speakers on your bikes and synced yeah. together. So I had this hilarious scenario in my mind of you two like playing like, I don't know, some sort of death metal at the same time, like being in the, rotating through the group and torturing everybody you're with. But what do you do for me? <laughs> I mean, that would be, that'd be great, you know, but the speakers are quite <laughs> heavy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we just both used, uh, shocks headphones, like the ones you can hear things around, which are nice. Cause I feel like, I mean, it's not safe to use regular headphones. You still have to hear like what's going on out there, especially on a course where like, it's not fully closed to cars and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I had the music turned off for the first, basically until the mud. And then, you know, cause the, the bunch is like really tight and up until then there's a lot going on. So it's kind of nice to be able to hear really well up to what's, what's happening. And then like you hit the mud and everything just detonates. So I just turned the music up and just got into the zone and started doing my thing. <laughs> Uh, and then had the music on for quite a while and eventually like was kind of suffering a bit between hours five and six and just kind of needed some peace and quiet. So I turned it off. Uh, mm-hmm. and then really never, I never actually didn't turn it back on again. Nice. Just felt like I was like uh, in the zone in the race. Didn't really, didn't need I, it. But, I did yeah. put in there who you beat text in. So it's like <laughs> hearing yeah. that I was telling Myron what you, what you wanted for nutrition is much less exciting than what i imagine i know just like, text you're like texting tobin like tobin what you do like where you at you know i was getting like text updates from people so i could see like time gaps and whatever oh, else so i have it synced to the garmin so i could text it or just come through and i can just read them on the head unit and uh be like, oh, my parents would be like oh yeah guys have like nine minutes on like it was beers robert alexi and zach Colton or something so Yes. Uh, kind of nice to get some updates that way. Cause otherwise it's kind of hard to know until you get to the feed zone. And even then, like it might be not super accurate at the moment. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was good to get some updates. Can I run people through the burner phone selection thing? This is like marginal gains defined because you have to have a phone with you. That's a rule and unbounds riders have yeah. to have a phone on them. So in your case, you're like, well, my 14 pros heavy. So I'm going to go for the lightest phone, an iPhone SE, yeah. which is just like, they weigh nothing. They're small, they're tiny. And then you got a separate SIM for that and you only gave it out to a select few people. So then that way you wouldn't get distracted with notifications and it would allow greater focus. Whereas otherwise, if you're carrying your normal phone, you might get normal notifications and get that sort of thing, you know, be bothered by that when you really need focus. And then you assigned like specific things like, you know, like you said, your parents on time splits, you and I had talked before and I forgot that they they weren't going to have good live coverage. Like, so I was useless because I was just going off of their Instagram stories, which was not very good um, to be able to. And it was fine. It was what they could do. Like, I'm just saying it wasn't live coverage. So it was hard to to give info. But this is like weight, size, distraction and focus. Like there's a lot to all the small details. I know you're thinking like, wow, that's overthinking like a small detail about the phone. But that isn't even representative of the detail through which you pass every single equipment choice, nutrition choice, pacing choice, strategy choice. Like you go to the nth degree on the details. And I think that people, yeah, miss I mean, that. you kill for, I mean, a lot of people would be like, oh, I can save 100 grams on my wheels or on, you know, on this and that. And you're like, well, I can save 100 grams on my phone. And <laughs> it was also like, you know, of course I have like insurance or whatever on my phone, but I don't want to deal with losing it. So I was like, I'm just going to get this cheap little phone and just a little refurbished iPhone. So if I lose it, like, sure, it's a bummer, but it's not a big deal. So that was the, the other thought there. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, if I'm going to be out texting and riding on gravel, there's a good chance that like I have to drop it suddenly put my hands on the bars or like throw the phone in my mouth or I don't know, do something weird. So I was like, figure it's a, 
behooves me to have a, a phone that I don't care so much about losing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a smart move. And that's that sort of level of detail is how you uh, avoid quote bad luck, right? Like th- things right. can happen out there, but planning. That's why you that carry three tubes and a bunch of, bunch of stuff too. Yeah, in case exactly. you do need it, you know? Okay. What did you do in the mud section that paid off? You were running the SRAM transmission, which I think that you guys were one of the only ones. I bet there were some age groupers out there, like some average folks, maybe that, that it had something yeah, set up maybe. like that. But I, I didn't see any pros with one because you have to have a universal derailleur hanger compatible gravel bike, UDH as they call it. And mm-hmm. your bike was. So as a result, you could run the transmission. I have to think you could, since that one is designed to shift under load and it shifts even better under load than when it's not under load. That had to have helped in the mud, right? But what else did you do to not have your day completely derailed in there like so many other people? Yeah, it, uh, I mean, it was sweet in the mud, you know, was just able to just plow through it. Um, and then also, like, I think that having one by definitely helps. There's less stuff in the front to grab mud. I ran out like a, a chain guide, helped keep the chain on because when the, the teeth pack full of mud, it wants to pick up and take it off. Mm-hmm. So I think like all of that, like, allowed me to, push a bit further in the mud than most. And also like if you ride fast through the mud that it like likes to fall off and like it flies off the tires easier. And like, you know, I was banging the bike around a bit to try and knock it off the, the down tube and stuff while riding. Um, and I also had Tobin ahead of me for a bit in the mud so I could see like where he was going and what lines were working for him, what lines weren't working. You know, at a certain point we had to like bail off the dirt and into the grass. And then you can kind of ride through the grass for a while. Then eventually you'd like, hit some rock or fall into a ditch and then you run for a bit and get back on. And, but yeah, I think the mud, you just have to be, be tough and just like keep pushing hard. And like, if your bike clogs up with mud and you have to stop and deal with it, then just deal with it and get back out on your bike and keep going. And like, it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, I think a lot of people were like overly concerned about like getting mud off and you just have to like, it doesn't really matter as long as your trailer is not totally jammed up and like the important parts are, fine i think you just need to make sure you can keep pushing and or just get off and start run for a bit you know instead of like sitting there messing with your bike it's like just run and hope it kind of falls off um so i think you have to just i think it's one thing it's you know helped racing in europe all these years when i was a junior and u23 racing a lot of mud over there and you just kind of learn how to deal with it um yeah and in so, yeah, you said, that's it you said you managed to keep your bike cleaned off um how like how specifically do you do that uh, yeah, I use a paint stick. So a lot of us had those like either taped to the bike or Velcroed or just in the pocket. And like, uh, we would clean them off while riding. Uh, I'd recommend stopping to do that. Cause it's a little bit, a little bit dangerous. You're sticking a stick around by your spokes and stuff and your bottom bracket, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you can also clean it off. You know, we, if the bike gets super jammed, you stop real quick and you clean it out and then like you work on the finer, finer bits while you're riding and trying to chip things off of there. Um, you know, clean the down tube off and like reach into the fork and clean it. Lachlan forgot a paint sticker. He didn't know to bring one and his fingernails were like gone and his fingers were all bloody from like clawing mud out of his bike while he was riding. And it was just like, <laughs> oh, gosh. Man. Yeah, just savage. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Did, wow. did you, did you all think in Ivy, I don't know, maybe you've seen this in Europe with cyclocross, but in the sport of motocross, what they do is they pack any sort of open space that could pack with mud. They put open cell foam in there. You know, I and thought I about used- that the night before and I was like, that would have been smart to get some open cell foam. And I, I but at that point it was too late, you know, so that's something to put on the list for next year. Yeah. I'm thinking, and they typically would like zip tie it on 
And like, you know, you could tape or zip tie something on like that. And then they also spray their bikes with Pam. Like if they're like mm-hmm. right before they go. And when you cover it with Pam, that nonstick cooking product, it definitely stops some mud from sticking, but not all of it. Some mud is just diff- like it helps all for a little different. bit. Yeah. And that mud in yeah. Kansas is just different. That stuff is nasty. It doesn't help. <laughs> Pam's not going to really do much, but yeah, the, Maybe the, the foam, foam could help. help. Yeah, like around yeah. your bottom bracket area, um, right? Just in that zone probably, where it was really caked on. You could probably, if you could get really fine with trimming it around, like your tire too, like in in the spots where it might collect on the fork and then on the seat stays yeah, and maybe. The chain stays down there. I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's a that's a so and you mentioned banging the bike on the ground. Like, is that just like bunny hopping up and down and kind of like smashing it down yeah. on the ground? Yeah, just smashing on the ground and like kind of aiming. Else, kind of aim for water, try and like blast it off. Um, yeah. but you know, your bikes, you're definitely losing. Man, you're probably losing like forty watts when there's just oh. there's mud just like dragging everywhere, and you just like can't really worry about it too much. You know, I saw guys like washing their bike in the creek, and it's like, well, you're gonna spend minutes in there dealing with things washing all the grease out and whatnot anyway so i don't know <laughs> like you're better off yeah. just trying to get off the chunks and it'll come off as, as you go you know so uh, well, you said- yeah, i don't know there's no perfect way around it like at a certain point you kind of have to you know stop and like really make, make sure you're not gonna rip your trailer off or whatever but um yeah sorry really quick you said <laughs> you nasty. did one by uh what size chain ring did you do in the front uh, i ran a 48 in the front and then it had a 1052 in the back. Nice. And then uh, for you, Hi. Keegan, when you, uh, some people are getting their bikes spray washed. Did you ever have your bike spray washed in the, in the pit or in the, not the, no, pit, I should say the feed. Uh, no, we didn't have a pressure washer and I don't know that I like really would have anyway. I really don't know that I got my bike clean enough that I'm not sure. Like maybe it would have been worth doing it super quick while I was shoving bottles in, mm-hmm. but I didn't think my bike was like bad enough to really worry about it. Um, just throw some lube on the chain and carry on. I did, I did spray some water on the bike early on. Like I knew I was going to have a little extra water cause it was kind of cool in the morning. So I, a drink mix, I guess so I was just dumping drink mix back there trying to spray the trailer out and spray the pulleys and like a few key areas. But um yeah i think it's something we might throw in the pit next year is a little little electric pressure washer in case it's really bad it seems like it'd be a good idea i saw people like waiting in the pit sitting there while their mechanics like spray wash their bike and i would absolutely want to spray wash me because uh talking to ryan standish this week like he said that at one point his garment was reading 103 degrees when it like for that brief period of or relatively yeah, it got hot brief- out there for a bit yeah, I got like the sun was super intense. It was really hot. It was really humid. And that could really like clean off all the muds. So then you could have better evaporative cooling and also like feel refreshed, like just to get drenched with some cold water and misted like that, you know, and sprayed off. It seems like it would be a good thing to do. Um, so yeah, yeah, like one pressure bad. washer for your bike, one pressure washer for you. And then yeah. boom, like take care of that'd You're be a fast NAS- NASCAR pit stop, you know? Hopefully uh, your competition's not listening to this because we're coming up with good ideas uh, to help next year. So, yeah, and most of them had pressure washers, so you know there. Yeah. There we go. Uh, okay, how? So I want to talk strategy really quick. How did you judge whether to chase or chill in the final like fifteen miles? Because it sounds like in the final fifteen miles, that's when I think that you were definitely the the targeted rider in that group. Like they all knew, like okay, Keegan's really strong. We need to try to make some moves and catch Keegan out. 
so it sounds like attacks were flying in the final 15 miles, and that's where tactics started really happening. So yeah. how did you, um, you decide to chase or let it go? Especially like after the fact like, that you lost by half a bike or like by a bike length the year before. Yeah. So you really wanted to win. Like you'd spent a year, yeah. you know, really, really beating your beating this into your head over and over that what you need to do to win. And then in the final 15 miles, you have attacks coming from not just one person, but it's a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, to the last, uh, last 20 miles, there's a lot, there's a few like good sized rollers, that, you know, like minute and a half long climbs or so. Um, and you know, I didn't really have to do much on those like Lachlan and Pete kind of set the pace on those hard enough. Like they were going as, as hard as I would have gone to try and get rid of Lauren's and, um, a couple of the other guys who I thought we might be able to shake. I thought Vakosh might come off on those climbs cause he, he kind of looked, looked bad for a long time, but then I kind of, kind of realized that he just might look like that while he's racing and he probably might still <laughs> feel good. Uh, yeah. you know, he might just, just might just be how it is. Uh, cause I was a bit worried about him. I figured he'd have a pretty good kick cause he came from the road. He raced world tour for many years. He was on quick step and then Alpacine and, uh, he raced Cape Epic as well. And I was like, I figured this guy's got a pretty good, pretty good hit. So it'd be nice. It'd be nice to, to shake him. Um, but it's also a bit of a balance, right? You don't want to drop yourself by attacking too so much. Uh, Lachlan, like I said, like Lachlan and Pete were driving the pace of the climbs hard enough that I was like, that's should, that's as hard as I'd go. And, you know, those guys were getting Lawrence actually came off, but then, you know, he's just like I said, he's a cockroach and he's, he always comes back. So, uh, Lawrence <laughs> fought his way back again for the second time. Uh, so yeah, after that, you know, we rolled together. Everyone was like rolling pretty good, even though we, we knew we had 20 odd minutes on the bunch, those guys behind chasing, but, you know, just wanted to get it done. And then with maybe eight, 10 miles to go, maybe a bit less, uh, I got started attacking, you know, I was like Pete, Boz, Lawrence, uh, Vakosh, those were my main, the main guys attacking and, um, seemed it was pretty much left, left to me to do most of the work to bring him back. Vakosh helped me bring back a couple cause I mean, his odds at winning a sprint were also pretty good. So he knew it was in his best interest to not let these guys roll away. Uh, but it seemed like it was up to me to do the majority of the work to bring these guys back. So I, did they, I don't know. Did I, they give you I confidence? Like I brought back like six, seven attacks. Yeah. Did that, did um, that give you confidence or did that frustrate you? Cause a lot of people I see on the road in situations like that, they're kind of like, why am I the one doing the work? And they'll, they'll get frustrated by that. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I kind of knew that was what it was going to be, you know? Uh, and I just tried to either cover the move right away or, wait a second, a couple of moves. I tried to snap harder and try and like make the guys behind work. So it's a bit of balance of like breaking him back, but not working so hard. Um, I still felt good. I wasn't ever like worried that I was going to be able to bring him back. It was just a matter of like not doing it in a way that I was going to blow myself up. Um, but it was a fair bit of work and that's, you know, leaning to the next question here. Like, why didn't you attack on the Hill? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just felt like, like last year, I feel like if you would have attacked yeah, on the Hill, Right, I bet that you would have won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I didn't attack there because I felt like everyone was still pretty good. At least there was a few guys that were still strong enough that I was like, if I attack here on the hill and I don't get at least a couple couple bike lengths, then I'm going to be the one leading into the straight. And I knew I'd be in trouble that way. And I also like wasn't quite sure how I had the legs would respond after having to cover all those moves. Because in any other scenario, I knew I'd have like a good one good effort left in me, but I'd just done like six, seven efforts. Um, so I was a little bit worried. I was like, uh, uh, like seems like a little more of a, even more of a gamble to me than gambling on the sprint. And I felt like I was 
very confident I could win that sprint. Um, so that was, that was my MO for not attacking on the hill. I also was a little bit, I was also second wheel. If I was like fourth or fifth wheel, maybe I would have attacked. Yeah. I could have caught him off guard, but I had, you know, still have plenty of strong guys behind me. Ideally I would have been further back, but it just kind of where, where it shook out. I just was glad I wasn't first wheel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that's why I didn't go on the hill. And I definitely what? thought about it a lot. I was like, Oh Matthew, you gotta go. You gotta go now. And I was like, do I go? Do I not? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. What happened after that? Because the coverage, all we saw was Lachlan. We saw like a spot where it was like a downhill going through a turn and it looked like Lachlan had attacked. And then that you were, chasing that down and then uh, the sprint i've only seen like some weird angles of the sprint so i don't i don't know what happened after the hill yeah so yeah, after the hill you kind of descend for a sec uh kind of down into the campus and i think lachlan must have been third or fourth wheel just behind and he he attacked on the right uh fast kind of carried some momentum off the downhill went wide and carried a bunch bunch of speed into the turn um I kind of heard someone coming up on the right and I was like, I, I just jumped and was able to, I mean, the turn was a little bit sketchy, had the knobs definitely on the limit trying to make the turn. Cause I was on the inside and he was on the outside. Um, yeah, we actually, I think we might've gotten a small gap. I don't know if Akash got on my wheel right away or not, but Lachlan just stayed on the gas all the way through campus. Um, you know, for a rider like him, that's his best bet at like a result is like a long, hard drag like that instead of a, like a finish line sprint. Um, so he just stayed on the gas and it, it set me up quite well for, uh, for the sprint. And I went, went a bit earlier than I usually would have, um, with all the riders and all the amateur riders in the finish shoot is a bit chaotic. So you kind of have to like judge it, like when you have a gap and when hopefully you're going to block the rider behind and make sure they don't have a gap. Cause I kind of, that screwed me last year a bit is like, you know, getting pinched by these amateurs. So I was like, well, I can, you know, take what kind of got me last year and make sure to do it to him and also a long sprint. Like I figured he was going to have a really good sprint. So I was like going long, might catch him off guard a bit as well. So yeah. Um, yeah. Can I ask you for a year, what role did your near miss last year play in your mental preparation for this event? Like, did you think about it? Did you put it out of your head? Uh, definitely thought about it a lot. You know, uh, we did a bit, you know, change the training a little bit, just worked on sprints a little. And I like, kind of ran, I rode the finish a few more times, rode with Tobin, you know, Tobin's really good, good at finishing a bike race. Um, you know, he's one of the few guys that I'd really want to come to the finish with. That's, that's good. He's my teammate. Uh, but yeah, so he, you know, he ran through all the, the different scenarios and where someone might attack. And I kind of figured like Lachlan or someone might make that move and that, that left hander list would be a good spot to go if no one goes on the climb. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to go there. Cause like I knew I had a pretty good sprint. So I was like, I'm just going to wait and someone else will probably get impatient or think that's their best shot. So they go, um, so, you know, ran over all the, the different scenarios. And I mean, I think try to not keep too much, you know, didn't like think too, too negatively about it. I just went in with like the thought of like, I'm going to win this bike race and here's how I'm going to do it. And try to be a bit smarter throughout the race not do too much work. I mean, I just did equal work to everyone else. I didn't feel like I was like Lachlan and Pete were definitely the most active out there. I think on the climbs or even throughout the whole race, like every climb was pretty much wide open. You know, we were doing like 450 Watts up those climbs with like six, seven hours to go, you know? So it was definitely a pace <laughs> that like that <laughs> no one was comfortable with, but, uh, like my strategy was just to kind of, close you know follow moves and not like give anyone too much leash and hopefully the pace that they were setting would also 
get rid of some of the other guys who were a little bit heavier, maybe or maybe not the best climbers, or just didn't were scared to do that high pace. Because sometimes it's a bit of a you know a bit of a chess match. Like, well, I'm going to do this power and see if you can do it for the same. And I know there's six hours left, and I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, so it's you know a bit of a game out there. Um, yeah. So I just try to race a bit smarter, and also this race like. You always want it. for me. I always try and leave a couple in the chamber in case I have to chase back on with a flat or whatever, you know. And there's a good odds of like stopping and having to plug, or and you know, if like something happens, like those guys aren't going to wait; they're going to get on the gas. So I think it would be, um, it'd be a proper chase. So I always try and make sure there's a little bit left to to do that. So, so you're not racing at the point where you're vulnerable, um, but instead you're trying to make sure that you're at a controllable pace, which and that's right. a big thing for all of us. And I also knew I was going to be just, I was going to get covered. I was going to get smacked with a bunch of attacks later too. So I was like, I have to, unless I can drop these guys and I'm going to get attacked. And I wasn't sure that like, even if I was going to drop them, there's like six of them that are going to work together and bring me back. So I didn't even know if, and everyone felt everyone was quite strong and everyone was riding really well. So it didn't seem like it was worth like going all in on one of those rollers at the end. So that's really different yeah. Ivy for like how most average athletes approach races. Like they'll start a gravel race and they'll just go as hard as they can for as long as they can. Then they blow up and then they limp in. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's how like the majority of us do it because and I know what you're saying. Like, yeah, well, Keegan's the fastest so he can do that. We just have to find the right spot in the field for our fitness. And then we can have like a day where you execute really well like this. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like, you know, it may not be the same time as the fastest people, but it's one where you execute well. Like it's really easy to overcook yourself, you know? Right. And it takes so much self-awareness to really understand what group and what level you should be racing at. And just because you're not at Keegan's level doesn't mean you can't go do a gravel race and doesn't mean you have to just go like throw it in endurance all day and just hope you don't die. You know, you should Mm -hmm. still be able to exercise some of those tactics, just understand where your limits are and what your level should be and not try to hang on Keegan's wheel for too long. <laughs> Takes humility, you know, um, yeah. Keegan, uh, so you, you lost last year. We just talked about that. <clears throat> it seems like you didn't want to let thing, let that motivate you too negatively. I know that you were really upset by losing by that slim margin, upset at yourself, not upset at anybody else, just upset at yourself for losing by that slim margin. Cause it was so close. Uh, I want to ask you kind of like, and this is tangential to this, but this year, you're coming in and like you have a different sort of pressure. It's the pressure to defend, right? In the Lifetime Grand Prix, you've won before. For a lot of athletes, the pressure to defend is a uniquely difficult thing that crushes them and it's really difficult to be able to manage it. And this is rel- rel- uh, relatable to the athlete that's listening to this that is like kind of like the big fish in the small pond, so to speak. Like, you know, you race really well for and against the fields that you race against and you might be like, you know, the local legend sort of a person. And then it's, but it gets tough over time to be able to defend and to be able to hold that. Has that been hard this year? The pressure to defend and to come back and to darn near win everything with a lifetime Grand Prix again, or has it just been business as usual? How do you approach that pressure? Uh, you know, it's mostly, you don't feel like a whole lot of pressure from the team or from that side. Most of it's like just from myself, you know, um, like I feel like I hate losing as much as I love winning. So for me, that's just as much a motivator. And I think sometimes I do, I try and change the expectations of like, or change the goals. Like I'm going to do, like I'm going to focus on this task at this race in order to win instead of focusing on like just winning, you know, at unbound, like for me, it was like racing smart 
and like racing the race that suited me. I knew I was like, make the race hard enough early on to get rid of the guys that I know are a true threat in the sprint. And then hopefully end up with the bunch that like I was confident I could beat, um, and just race, race smart. And then just kind of manage it that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a tricky thing to manage. You have to be like, in the end, you kind of have to worry about yourself and not worry about what others think, you know, and just trying to have the best day you can have and make sure you cross all your T's and dot all your I's and make sure you're prepared. Cause if you're going to like, if you go into the race, the favorite, and then ideal, I mean, you're probably the strongest there. The only way you're going to lose is if you do something wrong in preparation, you know, whether that's like, you know, not, not packing all your spare stuff, or maybe you messed up on nutrition or maybe you like sat out in the sun too much uh, or whatever, you know? So I think mm-hmm. you're going to lose because you did something dumb like that. Not because you weren't the strongest. So I think you have to just like make sure everything's dialed because everyone, everyone wants to beat you, you know, like all those guys out there want to, to beat me. So I think you just have to make sure everything's perfect because going in as a favorite, like everyone's racing against you and you never know. I mean, chances odds are they're going to have, even you know, if they're not teammates, they might race as teammates to beat you as well. So you have to kind of think about other ways of like, Oh, like, you know, if I were so-and-so here's how I would beat them. Like you have to like put yourself in their shoes and think how they'd beat you and kind of run through different scenarios. Um, just make sure you have them all covered, I guess. I don't know. It's can be a bit tricky, but um, yeah, in the end, I just find it's best to just worry about yourself and kind of check out for your own goals throughout the event. And um, yeah, kind of go from there. I think what you just explained there is really why there's few people that are like, and by nature, there's few people that are the most successful, right? Like, Cause all that's gotta be really hard thinking of, like you said, making sure everything's perfect, thinking of everything from everybody else's perspective, make sure that, making sure that you're doing all the training and checking those boxes, like all those things that adds up and that's hard to manage. Like, uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to, I mean, that's why few people I think can do it. Ivy, you, you got some thoughts. Well, and additionally, the mental fortitude to when things don't go perfectly, Keegan's vomiting at the back of the race and like, can still just be like, okay, it's fine. Like, that's kind of what. Um, is rattling me about this discussion is to be like, to have something biologically go so wrong in your like you know and mm-hmm. just be able to be like okay it's fine like I'm still gonna go win this bike race like unbelievable um yeah I, I mean you just lot. can't you know can't worry about it like everyone I feel like everyone had something go wrong like Russell had issues with his pack didn't have enough water the last bit uh Lauren's flatted has a chase back on you know I'm sure like Lachlan had something go wrong out there. He had that big tire that was packed full of mud. Like everyone has something go wrong. So just cause like one thing happens, you can't be like, Oh, that's my race. Like I'm done. And I think, mm-hmm. um, a lot, a lot of guys out there look for excuses as to why they didn't win or why they didn't achieve the result they achieved. And it seems to kind of be, seems to be happening a lot more, more now than recently with gravel and these big races is I think everyone's so good and everyone has high expectations and sponsors have expectations. So when something goes wrong, they try and find someone other than themselves to blame. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's for me, that's, that's key. Like I'm going to, you know, die on the sword out there if I have to, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so yeah, it's ownership, right? Like taking ownership of everything yeah. that could influence the outcome and yeah, just shoot the mud, you know, like a lot of people had things go wrong and it's like, well, maybe you should have changed you're run Like I think some of the guys didn't even know there was mud there. It's like, well, you can't blame the organization for you not knowing what the conditions were like, or maybe you should have ran. Like, why would you want road pedals or why would you run these tires? And I don't know. I feel mm-hmm. like 
you just set yourself up for failure. In a, you know, oh, because so. you you tricked him into it, Keegan, saying like I only run road yeah. shoes and slicks. You like yeah. posting <laughs> photos of like hard tails of drop bars before mountain bike races and you know, yeah. aspens yeah. on your gravel bike or something before a race <laughs> like this. Like, yeah, you know, that's probably why you're messing them all up. Yeah. Um, all right, last question on this, Keegan. This one may seem a bit odd, and you can take your time to answer it, but like from the outside in, a person could look at like Keegan and just be like, and I know you didn't win everything last year, but you came close to it. Um, and somebody could be like, man, Keegan's, uh, Keegan is different than me. Like I experienced self-doubt. He must not experience self-doubt. Do you experience self-doubt Keegan? Yeah. I mean, uh, it definitely comes into your mind, you know, like you think about it and you're like, well, I, mean, I lost this race last year in a very similar scenario. Last year, there was five of us, I think, and I lost. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that all race. I was like, oh, no, there's gonna, I was kind of hoping it would come down to like three people. You know, I was like, I really want to, this group needs to be smaller. Um, but so I kept thinking, like, oh, you lost it last year. Like, and just, you know, you keep thinking, like, what if it happens again? I'm going to be like, I'm going to be so mad, you know, so bad at myself. <laughs> um, so you just have to make sure it, make sure it doesn't and try and push that aside and think of like positive things like, oh, I'm going to do this to make sure that I, I'm going to execute this to make sure that I, you know, you know, set myself up for the sprint. And, um, you know, last year, like I went into the sprint, my drops were like covered in mud and I couldn't hold on properly and I was slipping off. So I made sure that like those weren't a problem this year, <laughs> just small things like that. Just like, you know, have a little checklist and try and like deviate yourself back to your plan instead of thinking about like, oh, I can't do it or, oh, this is the same scenario I lost. So I'm going to lose again. Um, the common theme yeah. in those things that are part of your plan are, of course, all like, and it seems obvious, but things that you can control, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't, and like, I'm bound to 200 mile, like 10 hour long race for us. Like there's so many unknowns. Uh, you don't know like what's happening with everyone else. That something happened to you. Like, I feel like you just have to worry about what you can worry about and then be prepared for other stuff to happen. And like be ready. Like I was fully prepared to flat and to have to chase for an hour by myself. And that's why, you know, why I had the headphones and like why I had the extra gels. Cause when you start rolling extra hard, you have to take in some extra carbs. And like, I was like mentally ready to have to like bury myself for a couple hours to bring this group back. So I was going to, you know, do that or pass out on the side of the road, trying, I guess, Oh my god, cool. <laughs> you know, like that's just like, that's the things you have to make that front group. Like, there's no, you have no option, you know, like Lachlan and those guys said they're chasing us. Cause like Tobin, Russell, Howard, and a couple of other kids. And I got away early on for the mud and, you know, those guys were, they said they're riding like so hard to chase back. And they're like, they're like, we had no choice. And then we knew that too. And that's why we were pushing quite hard up front to make them. I knew eventually like Boz and Lachlan and 10 Dam, those guys would bring us back. But you just have to make it as hard as possible for them to do it. So um, you know, they had, they knew they had to get there. Even that pace wasn't sustainable. You're like, well, you have to make it to the front in order to, to be part of the race. So. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Keegan. Uh, thanks for letting us walk through this and kind of like try to decode what makes you tick and all the decisions yeah. you made. Super interesting stuff. Your next race is Crusher in the Tusher, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. My race soldier hollow, uh, the product CT here in Utah, because it's in my backyard. We'll see how the legs are feeling. And if I, kind of feel like pushing or not but uh so possibly that one and then the next for sure will be crusher and the tusher then the following weekend i'll do the downeyville classic back on the mountain Ooh. bike so yeah it'll be fun 
Will you do Crusher and the Tusher on your gravel bike? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then Definitely. after that, it's mountain bike season. You'll be Downeyville for Leadville. one race. Yeah. And then I guess Leadville. Yeah. yeah. Although you might race your gravel bike for Leadville, eh? With the new one. Who knows? The one you Stop can't talk it. about. Yeah. Who knows? Oh my so. gosh. Who knows? I might. <laughs> <laughs> might be faster. Who knows? All right. Sebastian says, yeah. uh, we're going to run to a couple questions. This one's relevant to you, Keegan. Once or twice a month, I go on weekend trips up to the mountains. I live at 2,800 feet. Uh, so, uh, Ivy, can you run some, some metric conversions for me? I forgot to run them on this one, but yeah. uh, 2,800 feet. And I go up to mountain lakes or mammoth lakes, forgive me, California at 7,000 feet. Uh, mammoth should be more than 7,000 feet. Um, just saying should be 8,000 feet most likely in any trails that you're riding around there. Right. Keegan, you and I have raced there quite a few times. So more like eight. Yep. So yeah. 2,800 feet is about 850 meters. And then, uh, 7,000 feet is 2,100 ish meters, but amazing. Probably higher than that. Yeah. Yeah. Cell phones. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying not to type so that Maxine doesn't have to edit it out. (laughs) Non-Americans are so happy with Ivy right now. If you appreciate that, give the video a thumbs up (laughs) for Ivy. So, uh, it's annoying to drive down the hill to do my workouts. So I usually just do them on the climbs out there. My question is, should I arrange my weeks to have specific types of workouts during the, uh, the high elevation days? Should I avoid threshold work or over unders? Or will these still be productive if I back them off by an un, or by an expected certain percentage? I'm trying to bias my endurance days to the weekends. Uh, or then, forgive me, uh, I read that one wrong. Sebastian says trying to bias my endurance days to the weekends feels like a trap. Uh, thanks from Sebastian. So Keegan, you've just gone up to altitude um, from Tucson. You're now you're based out of Utah for the rest of the season. Uh, what suggestions would you have? I, I, I assume that you go through like an adaptation period where you don't just go straight into VO2 um, when you get to Utah. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of restarting, uh, not at zero, but we're, you know, just kind of rebuilding here at altitude. We're starting off with just volume block and then we'll do a bit of tempo and, you know, give myself a few weeks to, before we get into the intensity. Um, yeah. So going, you know, with this question here, I'd say like, I mean, you're up there and I think, like altitude is like just makes things harder, you know? So if you have a threshold workout, I would just like either adjust your threshold based off that altitude, like tone it back 10% or whatever it might be. Or if you're, you know, you have probably have zones for your threshold work. Like maybe you have to do your FTP workout at like 300 to 310 Watts. And in that case, just do it at the bottom of the zone, you know, just ride the bottom of the zones up there. Um, and sure. You're not going to hit your, you might not hit your like TSS numbers or like nail the workout exactly, but you have to realize that you're up, you're up higher and you're still like loading your body up the same or more than you would at sea level. And it's still, it's going to be a little less work like on the, like on the muscles and your legs, but you're going to work your aerobic system more. And I don't think it's, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's not like you're up there all the time and you're not going to lose all your muscle strength. So I think I would say just do whatever workouts you have and you know, it's probably going to hurt more, but you can just do slightly less power and um, you'll be fine. Yeah, it's not a bad thing, but you know, it could be a bad thing spending a bunch of time driving in your car to go train when you could just be like enjoying right. your weekend up at Mammoth. Like, yeah. yeah. Or change your training, you know, if you can just change it to like tempo and endurance, maybe a little bit of sweet spot instead of, I wouldn't recommend doing VO2 because that just is kind of be a, you know, if you're not acclimated at it, you're just, especially if you're going to get back going down to sea level, you might as well just wait and do it back when you're home or down, down low, whatever, whichever one's home. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, yeah. I would swap the workouts around. In this case of going from 2,800 feet up to 7,000 feet, or really 8,000 feet, you're looking at a 10% difference in terms of what you should expect. Like you should expect a 10% reduction in all of your zones, like drop them all by 10% more or less. And that's like what you would see. So I, I would really like, if you look at that in terms of the power zones that you would have, uh, 10% is enough to make a, a certain like sweet spot becomes threshold. Threshold becomes VO2. Tempo becomes sweet spot. It like shifts everything up. So like to Keegan's point, uh, yeah, I think that you have to govern your expectations and it can be helpful sometimes to just ride by RPE. If it's just like a one day a week sort of thing, just make sure you're riding by feel. And that's a good opportunity to kind of figure out what that, what the power is actually like when you ride by feel for those workouts, if you want to do that. But I would really just recommend on those days that you're, when you're up there, you mentioned that like trying to bias my endurance days to the weekends feels like a trap. It can be a trap if you're doing like, you know, a day of VO two, a day of, uh, threshold. And then after that, like a day of sweet spot, a day of something else. And you've like packed them all in like that. You'll notice in our training plans that those sort of intense days are typically spaced out from each other. Um, so if you have to do that in order to do your endurance work on the weekend, then yeah, that might be tough. But otherwise I would absolutely add like advocate for doing your endurance work and also making sure that you're dropping your endurance work by 10% and making sure that you're paying attention to feel um, because it will be tougher. You're not going to get like the benefits though of training up there of getting like altitude training like that, that needs to be more contiguous. Like you need to be spending a larger block of time at altitude for, to get some benefits. The only thing that you will be getting, and I say only, I don't want to belittle this cause it is impactful, right? Uh, IV and Keegan is you'll become more aware of what it feels like just to ride a bike up there at like that in those sort of conditions. And if you can manage your headspace in altitude, that will be a huge benefit on race day. That's assuming you actually are going to be racing at altitude, which you haven't indicated in this case. So I would advocate for changing around the days and doing lower intensity work when you're up at elevation, as long as it doesn't make it so that you're blocking a bunch of high intensity work back to back. Also, just like allow your time up there to be to serve the purpose that it's meant to serve, which I'm assuming is to get out of town and just like enjoy mountain time and relax. Like yeah. you don't have to worry about doing, you know, like BO2 max repeats, like just get on a mountain bike and do an endurance ride and enjoy it, you know? Um, way better. So that yeah, when you go back home and need to do your like really hard structured workouts, you feel like refreshed and stoked and not stressed out about or fatigued from trying to make that trip something that it's not for you, you know? Yeah. Keegan, aside from adaptation for the events that you're going to do that are altitude. So you have Crusher, you have Leadville, you have Downeyville, which really isn't that high. Um, but it's certainly not like, you know, Leadville. Um, in addition to that, you'll have SBT if you're going to do that race again. And then it sounds like that new lifetime Grand Prix down in Colorado is also higher elevation. So you have a lot of high elevation races. Makes sense that you're in elevation to prepare for that. But from a training perspective, what do you and Jim look to get out of like, What's the benefit you notice from training at altitude? Because you could be down at sea level and putting out bigger watts mm. and training down there and possibly getting more adaptation in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think like, especially when you're racing at altitude, and it's like when it's Leadville, it's like exceptionally high. I think like living and training at high altitude is extremely beneficial, especially for me. Like it goes back to your point on uh, like learning how it feels and what it feels like to push at altitude. Cause I think, you know, you could 
maybe living in an altitude tent and training down low, like in some cases could be like, you could argue that's better, but I think like to race that high and perform that high, you have to be like really good at knowing what it feels like and knowing how to push, like when to push the motor a bit and when you need to, to back off. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a bit of a, it just takes time. You know, you have to learn and like, like doing efforts, like I'll start doing efforts over the top of the pass, you know, just to like get a feel for it. And, you know, it's like, it's a bit higher and it's going to hurt a bit more, but you have to just learn how to manage that and like kind of feel how the altitude, how it makes you feel, you know? Um, so yeah, and we'll focus on like, you know, building just a bigger aerobic motor. It's like lots of, you know, endurance miles, uh, we're going to do like some more tempo, maybe some more like muscle tension stuff, um, and work on that the next few weeks. And then, you know, do a bit of threshold work as we get closer. But I mean, in the end, what you need for that race and all these, these bigger, those bigger races altitude is just a, a massive aerobic motor. You don't need like to have like a ton of punch or anything. Cause if you go that hard, you're just going to detonate anyway. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all about just aerobic. Yeah. Um, do you notice anything different in terms of your performance? Like, do you notice that when you train at altitude for a long time that you're better at a certain type of effort? Yeah, I man, I definitely get better at like the 10 plus minute effort. I feel like, I feel like, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes like the, the shorter ones might suffer a little, like maybe I lose a little bit of like the very top end, but, uh, yeah, like the being able to do those, those longer, more sustained effort is efforts is more important. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good trade off for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More efficiency derived from being up at altitude. Right. Perhaps, yeah. You just, you know, just get a more, more efficient motor and, um, you can just push a little bit higher for longer. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, last question from Braden says, my absolute favorite segment, favorite is in all caps, I should communicate, uh, segment of your show has been when you do a deep dive into a trainer road athlete's training, a uh, recent training history, debunking their quote, endurance miles, <laughs> giving suggestions, etc. I'd love it if you could do the same for me. I think that the jokes, banter and suggestions are well-intentioned and funny. So feel free to not hold back. Talk to me like I'm one of your homies, he says. Can't wait to um, roast you, Braden. <laughs> <laughs> Ivy's been waiting for it. Um, full permission to share my info like FTP and other training data, if that's useful for the context or for the conversation, my context. My A race isn't until October 14th of 2023. I'm hoping to go sub three hours at the Filthy 50 in Lanesboro, Minnesota. I did the low volume training plan throughout the winter, uh, while my primary focus was strength training in the gym. It's an undisputed fact that the low volume plan may be a stronger cyclist and only a matter of months. Way to go. Awesome. Good to hear. Uh, however, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we really only get nice weather a few days or a few months out of the year. So since around mid-March, I've just been taking advantage of the nice days and getting out and riding and only using trainer road when I have weather or scheduled restrictions. All right. Roast number one, Braden, red right, flag. Ivy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the red flag? <laughs> you know you can train outside, right? Like you can do yeah. intervals outside. And when it's nice outside, you don't have to just like quit doing structure because the sun's out. <laughs> yeah, man. Structure, like don't equate structure with inside. I think that's a big mistake that a lot of athletes do. Uh, because when you're inside, structure is just like a better way to make time more efficient uh, to make the use of your time, I guess I should say. A lot of people do more of it, and that's why a lot of people are flying come like springtime. And then once they get into midsummer, they're dragging because it's not well structured anymore. 
uh, yeah. So, um, I've been, and then I love this. Uh, I've been following some quote loose structure in the following way. And it is pretty loose, uh, four to five rides per week, a minimum of seven hours per week, two intensity days, one in the form of an unstructured long ride, usually on Saturdays so that I can get out of the city and ride some gravel. An example would be my ride on, on May 5th of this year, which by the way, I don't expect anything different in these scenarios, but Braden shared like the, the best examples on each of these rides. I went back and checked your training history, Braden, and you aren't, you definitely pick the best example. So good on you for doing a good job, but just the same, we're going to go through these rides and the other with the 60 to 120 minute ride with the focus zone three power effort mixed in, for example, the ride on June 1st. And we'll mention all these things and we can even show some of the rides up here so you can see them on screen. Uh, the other two to three rides per week are a mix of easy social rides with buddies. Eh, are they easy? Uh, or rides where I try my darndest to stay in zone two the whole way for a a portion of it you do. Um, yes. So I also mix in one or two gym days per week. So my questions, I'm really enjoying this loose structure. It's been sustainable and it allows me to get out and do some social rides with friends. Those are, that's a super important part, right? You have to enjoy riding. If you don't enjoy riding, like, you know, you're losing it. So I did a gravel race on May 20th. Um, and it was ecstatic with my results. It was a 20 minute PR for a gravel ride of that distance. I set new power records. I'm curious though, can you see in the data if I'm becoming a better cyclist or am I losing or just maintaining fitness at best? Do you have any suggestions on how I could improve upon this plan? My focus right now has been to build as big of a base as I can with seven to 12 hours per week on the bike. Thanks so much for putting out these regular podcasts. They're a blast to listen to and extremely informative five stars across all platforms. Thanks a bunch, Braden. And thanks for also submitting your training like this. This is like a uh, great. One of the things that we always talk about here at work is radical candor and like it's, it's being willing to, to care enough about a person that you're honest with them, uh, to be able to share information that could help them be better. And, uh, yeah, so we do that a lot here at trainer road and we're going to do that right now. Uh, also with, uh, your profile. So I just want to run through some basic stuff here and Keegan, then at the end of this, I kind of want to get your thoughts on the basic principles of things that he could improve on or things that maybe he's doing well. So then you can share your thoughts on that as well. Um, Keegan isn't just a jockey. He understands how to train the horse too. So, um, okay. So my assessment on February 1st, you started at an FTP of 230 Watts. That's of this year. You did five weeks of sweet spot based low volume, and it was a pretty darn good five weeks. Now, currently how sweet spot based low volume, I might've just leaked something, but, um, uh, how that works is that it's five weeks of loading one week of deloading. Okay. And so that's why I did five weeks of loading. Then after that went on vacation for two weeks, um, which looked like a great vacation. And then inconsistent after that, you came back and you're inconsistent with your structure for two weeks, but you added in outside rides. So your TSS looks like it was kind of like, you know, in the right spot. And these outside rides aren't structured at all. Then you had good structure for a week. And I think it's because you knew an FTP test was coming up. It's kind of funny. It's like the, even a test comes up, you know, the kids do their homework sort of a thing. And in this case, uh, you got 237 FTP, so an increase of 3% at the end of that week. So given that you took two weeks off and then you had inconsistency and then came back, I bet that you would have gotten more than 237 if you were diligent with your training and you did that five weeks of loading, one week of deload, and then went back into a structured training plan. But 3% is what you had. Then you did another solid week of training, but then you did inconsistent training for four weeks. You increased your total volume, but you decreased the amount of workouts that you were doing that were structured to zero, one, or in one case, two a week. So in that situation right there, uh, you ended up, uh, once again, increasing your TSS, 
uh, because you were doing just riding more, but you were starting to decrease your structure. And your next FTP increase was only 2.5%. So you went up to 243. So it's still something, it's still good. And then you had five weeks of volume increase, but much less structure. Like you've mentioned this loose program that you're following now. So you asked this question, are you stagnating? And the answer 100% is yes. So using AI FTP detection and a version that we have that's able to predict things that in the future we hope to be able to release. If more of you sign up for Trainer Road, that means maybe we can hire even more people and we can make this happen. So sign up right now if you want to see this feature. It's like that simple. Sign up and then more features will come out. Uh, but using that to predict right now, it has you at 242. So it, it, that means that your FTP is stagnated slash slightly dropped in this case. Now, looking at your levels, though, they're stagnating or dropping. And these are your progression levels. Think of yourself like a video game character, like your Pikachu or something. I don't know. And you have like all these different levels and they're adjusting as you do more or less training. In this case, they're dropping. And here's a good example of why. So even on that ride where you mentioned that you did a good job of holding Z2 for an hour in the middle of the ride, you have to keep in mind, it's still like just doing, that's like doing a lot of unstructured work than just riding Z2 for an hour which isn't going to be very productive at moving the needle in terms of making you faster. It might be reinforcing and kind of like patching up some cracks on the, on the base side of things, but that's only if you're allowing yourself to recover from it. And what you're doing before and after that hour of structure is stoichastic efforts. They're kind of just all over the place. So then as a result, you're, you're blunting your body's ability to recover and adapt from that hour of endurance work because you're throwing in some chaos on either end of it. It's like, you know, good in the middle, but then, bad bread on the sandwich. So that makes it so that even though you're doing the quality work, that quality work is inherently degraded in its ability to make you faster. Um, so that's a big thing to keep in mind, but the biggest problem I see, and I don't know if you see this too, Ivy looking at the, their training, but there's just no clear recovery weeks. Their recovery weeks in the sense of like, um, you may not do a structured workout, but they're not recovery weeks in the actual true sense, like where you're trying to drop down stress and allow yourself to recover. Right, Ivy? Right. And I know you really like the structure and I know you really like the freedom, but ultimately if you want to keep getting faster and do really well in that race in October, you have to have, I think, some periodization in your training plan. And so, um, yeah, I guess I'll just cut to the chase to what I think this approach should be. Um, I'm seeing that your power source for your outside rides is the Garmin Rally 200, those power meter pedals. So I know that you have power outside and you can absolutely push workouts to your head unit to do outside. And, um, you can still, you know, do these structured workouts. And then if you, on your days during your, uh, two or three intensity days a week, you can still do those workouts. And if you like that unstructured alone time to do after that, you can still add that after you do your structured workouts, but like that zone three workout that you did on six, one, like that's not a structured workout. Um, so I think you should go back to low volume, do a training plan that's periodized and has those recovery weeks. And it's actually going to move you forward towards getting faster and reaching your goal. Um, and push them outside and still have your couple days a week where you get a ride with your homies. Um, and I think that's a good mix of flexibility and freedom and actually having real structure that's going to keep getting you faster. Keegan, you good, good advice, Ivy spot on. Um, and when you're talking about recovery weeks, Keegan, I feel like I've seen a change in you over the past four years. You're like religious about recovery weeks now, like 
How important are they? And how do you, what do you do or not do during a recovery week that turbocharges the rest of your training? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the last couple of years, that's one thing we've kind of changed is we train, like we train harder, we train more, but like rest weeks are properly chill. Like this past week after Unbound, I've had like, you know, three days off and basically the rest of the days are just kind of easy recovery rides. I had one like kind of mellow two hour endurance day. Um, and then like this week we're getting back to training, but it seems like that's kind of been the trend. The last, last bit is just like pushing harder and trying to find the limit. Um, and then you know, resting enough that you can actually absorb that work. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I agree with both. I mean, both you guys have valid points. So he kind of, uh, needs to like either follow the training plan and, um, or go back to a lower volume one. And if you want to add, you know, a little more like kind of stuff on your own on the weekends that you can add the volume there or, uh, you know, just keep doing what you're doing, but don't expect to be any faster and just be okay with like, just be okay with it. You kind of have to decide if you want to be faster, if you just want to do what you're doing. And that's like, in the end, that's, you know, up to you, you know, you're going to have to make the decision of if you want to like be quick, be like better at this race you're going to do, or if you just, you know, want to go through it and, if you're having a good time doing what you're doing, then maybe that's fine. But if your goal is to be faster, then you have to like, you know, period, periodize it a bit more and like take those breath, take those rests. And also maybe like focus on the work a bit more. Um, you can't have your cake. You can't have both. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Keegan, like you can keep doing what you're doing, but you should just yeah, not expect like to, you know? yeah. <laughs> right. Just don't like, expect to get faster. You just need to, yeah, you can't expect to get faster doing the same thing over and over. You're going to have to change something if you want to get better. So, uh, yeah, it's really <laughs> it's logical. Simple, I think <laughs> it's really logical, but yeah. worth saying. And I know that like, if you hear this, you'll think like, duh, and some people would be upset by it. But, uh, if you put, if your inputs are in specific, your outputs will also be in specific, like, and if you want a specific outcome, it makes sense that you should take a more specific approach to what you're putting in. So, in this case, the thing that concerns me about continuing to do what you're doing is that it's in October is your goal event. And right now where this leads is a plateau, which you're already at and then eventual burnout. Because what happens is like, you're not giving your body the time to rest and you're not doing training that really is like pushing the limits. But since you're not offsetting it with adequate rest, it could get to the point where come August, September, you're cooked and you're just like exhausted. And then by that time, then you're panicking and thinking, what can I do to get ready for October? I know this is probably controversial here, but if anything, I would recommend starting your structure now and it mattered less in February than it does now because managing your structure for all of us that love riding our bikes, it's really easy for us to come in overcooked to what let's show our goals. So right now is when a training plan probably matters the most, but just like to quote Dexter, Holland from the offspring. We all like the offspring here. Uh, got to keep them separated, man. Like you can't <laughs> like, and that's going to help you a ton. Like if you can keep your training days, your training days and just go out and do the workouts and then separate from that, have your fun days, but then make sure that you are really, really respecting those recovery weeks. That's when you tell your friends, like I'll meet you at the coffee shop, but I'm just going to drive there. Like I'll see you there. Like, and you just know, you got to know yourself to know how dangerous you can be to yourself. You have to know yourself that well, because you have to this look at your I'm power profile. Yeah. I know <laughs> and I would never, I would never rest. Yeah. Aww. You don't rest. And, 
And the hard thing is if I look at like your Z2 rides uh, or just like the rides, they're all over the place in terms of the power. It's like bumping up and down. And if you are going to ride on those recovery weeks, like that's when you want to dot every I, cross every T. Just everything has to be like buttoned up because what you're doing is you're trying to like lay the groundwork, make that red carpet roll out as far as it possibly can so that your body can make as much progress as it can. And sometimes you just have to tell yourself, you have to remove yourself from the situation that could cause you to like transgress, right? And in those situations, I really think that that's like uh, helpful for for those situations. Now, if any of this makes riding less fun, like Keegan said, back off on the volume a bit. Um, maybe if three workouts a week is too much, use train now, but then make sure without a doubt, go onto your training calendar right now, find every fourth week and mark off that fourth week as a no training week. So then that way you are just like resting because if you're doing train now, it's not going to be periodized, but you could do less than that. So that's, that's what I would recommend, um, is you really have to end up introducing structure in order to get any sort of a desired outcome and, you know, we all love riding bikes and training should augment that. It should never take away from it. Um, and in your mind, you should look back and be like, that sacrifice of spending that time doing workouts is worth it because now I enjoy the bike more for all the other times that I'm on the bike. That's the whole point of training. So, uh, but you can't get in its way. Otherwise it's just going to be work that isn't delivering the benefits and it really will make riding less enjoyable, you know? So that social aspect too. Yeah. I just, um, I'm thinking about like athletes that think that social rides can't also be training. And, um, there's a lot of times in which they can't be, you know, if you're like with a bigger group and it's meant to be just like a chill coffee ride. But, um, I've started kind of like shooting my shot with friends that want to ride with me. Um, and you know, if, if I think they're close to my ability level or willing to, like hang back for a sec and let me do an interval, uh, an interval set and, you know, rejoin them. Um, a lot of times they're stoked to do it and want to try to like hang mm-hmm. on from my wheel as long as they can. And then we join up afterwards and it's like, yeah, sick. And then, and then go to the coffee shop after, you know? So like, um, that doesn't apply to everyone. That's not a good strategy for everyone, but for this person, like if you want to still have that social time and train, um, like they don't have to be separated in every instance, you know, maybe see if someone wants to be a training buddy and do intervals with you and be part of that process with you. It can be really cool and pretty rewarding and add another, uh, fun aspect to, to training that that's social and enjoyable. No, Keegan has homies. Yeah. You have homies you do intervals with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, like you said, if they're not doing the efforts, then like sometimes we'll just change the room. They go, I'll just do my tempo on the flats and they can just sit on and like moto pace for a bit. I mean, John's done this with me mm-hmm. a fair bit, like, or he does the same workout and we just kind of do it on the same climb and we're just doing our own thing, but we're both out there suffering. I and mean, Russell and I are training together. We both have exactly the same workout sometimes. And we'll nice. just like start the intervals at like varied times on the climb. And we're just going up and up and back, like doing our own thing and not talking at all. But you know, it's nice to have you know, like he's suffering, I'm suffering. We're both having a good time, <laughs> you know, yeah. so you can like, you can do workouts together. You just have to like, even if someone's on a different training plan and they're properly trained, you just have to make sure that like you pick the right route or, or you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. So I just got ride by yourself and that's just the way it is, but you can like change things to make it work sometimes. So, Yeah. 
And you've got South African Matt Beers with you, uh, Cape Epic champ. He's staying up there in Utah. So I'm sure that'll be happening. Like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, we got, I've got the horse here. So we're going to do, you know, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing. Like he'll do, you know, maybe I'll sit on him on the flats or he can sit on and we can, or we'll just change swap days around and make it work. Um, but yeah. I'd love it if everybody listening to this went and followed Matt Beers on Instagram and supported him. He's doing the Lifetime Grand Prix this year. It's pretty cool. It's a really cool opportunity for him. And what a cool, like good, what a, he's a champ and like super good outlook on good training dude. and racing. Really good dude. Just really great. So um, last thing I was going to say on this is, um, when you're talking about the training stuff and doing it with friends and, and trying to separate everything out and trying to work through all of that complexity, uh, I would absolutely advocate for this thing that Ivy's talking about, about trying to like find situations that help make it more motivational. And that may look like having another person come with you or, Keegan and Finsty are like route masters where like they find a route that's really entertaining and it, and it's like really exciting for them to go and do. And that makes the training much more enjoyable. Um, and that's like in Finsty your case since is the route finder. Yeah, yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I have no idea where we're going. I just ask road shoes or mountain bike shoes and how much water to bring. And then I would go. That's awesome. <laughs> Magellan Finsty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, but I think, uh, in your case, since you're doing like hour long routes and I know up in Minnesota, you have like really cool roads up there that are like beautiful rolling roads. I don't know, maybe I'm uninformed in your specific area, but the majority of athletes that I've spoken to in Minnesota, you have like really these really cool, beautiful areas with these rolling roads. And maybe you can find some really cool routes to be able to, to like plan out. And then it makes it so that it's a bit more fun. Um, so yeah, anyways, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Cause I don't want to take away from the fun that you're having with your And I I guess that what I'm getting is maybe the fun that you're having with cycling isn't just because it's unstructured. Maybe the fun that you're having in cycling is because there are other elements of what you're doing right now that you just really love about riding bikes. And those don't have to go away by introducing structure. Maybe you can have both in that regard. You just do have to be like, you have to keep structure sacred. It kind of sits on its own in terms of not trying to mix it up too much and change it up. Um, But then that way, that allows everything else to be just way, way better. So yeah, that's what I'd recommend. Um, thanks for sharing it with us and you can submit your questions. And if you want us to run through your training, uh, we get a lot of suggestions for that every week. Um, but we would love for you to submit it, uh, go to trainerroadcom slash podcast. If you start going into the fact that like my great grandfather was born on this date and he wrote his, you know, he did six hours a week. I'm probably not going to read that one. That might be a bit too much detail, but we'll go through it. (laughs) If you're having, if you're running into a block with your training, share it. And then maybe what we can do is go on here and look at it. So, and roast you, please let us roast you. (laughs) (laughs) Kindly. Yeah. Yeah. Kindly. Uh, all right. With that, that's it for this episode. Uh, if you appreciated this episode, the best thing you can do to help is to rate the podcast on Spotify. That's huge. Rate it five stars. And if you appreciate Keegan coming on here, dedicating his time, that'd be awesome. Go follow Keegan, his team, support his sponsors, the ones that support him, Santa Cruz, Rafa, SRAM, Monster, all those companies. Go support them that support him. That goes a long way to making all this stuff kind of work. So, and of course, if you're listening to this and you want to get faster, if you want more features to come out, if you want them to come out faster, go to trainerroad.com and sign up. That's how we grow. We don't have investors. It's all of you that keep us going and we're grateful for that. So we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Congrats, Keegan. Yes. Proud of you. Congrats. Thank you. Way to go.